Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Barbara Fougere about a herbal approach to liver disease. Barbara has studied integrative medicine for over 20 years and has a Bachelor of Complementary Medicine and a Master's in Health Science in Herbal Medicine. She also has graduate diplomas in veterinary acupuncture, Western and Chinese herbal medicine. She is a founder of the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies and she practices veterinary integrative medicine at All Natural Vet Care in Sydney. Barbara is also the author of several books, including Veterinary Herbal Medicine and Integrating Complementary Medicine into Veterinary Practice. Hi, Barbara, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks, Sarah. It's, um, it's a real honour. Oh, great. Well, we're really excited to talk to you today um, about a herbal approach to liver disease in small animal practice. Um, And I know that's an area of interest for you. But before we jump into that, are you able to just share a bit of a a sort of a life story with us, um, how you came about to um, want to be a vet and and how you actually came to be so interested um, and involved in the field of integrative veterinary medicine? Hmm. Um, I don't know if you really want to know this. <laughs> of course I, I do. <laughs> I, think, I think I was interested in being um, a veterinarian probably as young as six or seven um, oh, wow. coming off a off a farm and actually seeing my father slaughter sheep and pull the guts oh, out. <laughs> and I was, and the I was so fascinated by the gory bit. Yeah. Um, but I guess uh, I, I couldn't really think of much else that I wanted to do except being a flight attendant, which I actually <laughs> did do for a couple of years. Oh, really? Uh, with, with Qantas. Yeah. Um, while I was already um, a vet and practicing part-time at Bondi oh, wow. Junction in Sydney. So um, I've tried a few things out yeah. over my veterinary career, but I've always been interested in um, other ways of treating um, diseases. As a child, I suffered badly from migraines, and it mm. just so happened that my GP at the time was Chinese, and in the 1970s, um, I had acupuncture to help um, reduce my migraines and make them less severe right. and less frequent. And so I grew up thinking that was normal. That's yeah. what doctors do. Yeah. Um, and so when I was at uh, Murdoch University, I had the opportunity to take complementary medicine as an elective in my final year. And I had the lovely Dr. Sheila White as my mentor. And she'd actually studied in China. She uh, introduced me to, um, you know, the, the, the science of acupuncture and yeah. other therapies. And literally from the time that I left university, I continued to study a range of different modalities. And And why did I do it? I mean, I love my education. I love pharmacology at university. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a practitioner, I was really conscious that there were clinical cases that I couldn't budge. That I just had to manage them, yeah. but I couldn't make the animals more well yeah, um, and a lot of the yeah and a lot of the patients you know really suffered side effects from some of the medications so I've continued continuously looked for uh, tools um, other things that I can do and and that sort of led me on this course to um, herbal medicine mm. and uh, acupuncture and other therapies mm. um, it's actually my patients that that forced me to go and look for other solutions when yeah. what I have in my toolbox isn't isn't enough. Yeah. And and that's really what's led me on my journey. Oh, that's that's a really nice story. And I'm I'm quite jealous that you got to take that elective 
at Murdoch University because <laughs> that certainly wasn't offered at Sydney University yeah. um, and it should be. I, is it still in place, yeah. that elective? Look, no, no, it's, um, I don't believe it is, but um, we were just really fortunate, just the right people, right time. And I think the curriculum in the universities these days is absolutely jam-packed and it's hard yeah. to fit in other things. But I'll tell you what's happening in the USA. Um, there is a big drive towards having modules of integrated medicine within the veterinary school curriculum mm, because there is fantastic. a recognition, yeah, yeah, recognition that there's public demand. Um, veterinarians need to know the difference between homeopathy and herbal medicine. Yeah. And still to this day, a lot of veterinarians don't know the difference. And if we can't, you know, articulate simple things to our clients, um, they're going to go to the internet for information. They're going to go mm. outside our expertise mm -hmm. um, to get to get that information. So I think it behoves us as a profession that we train veterinarians and new veterinarians to, you know, have at least a basic language around these other therapies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's so many that are genuinely interested. Maybe they've had, um, similar to you, they've come from a, a personal experience with integrative medicine and they have a genuine interest for that. And if they're spending so much time studying and you know, years and years and years getting this qualification, I mean, I would have absolutely jumped at the chance to to learn more about natural medicine and, and nutrition and integrative medicine. And we had really not much at all at Sydney Uni other than a bit of nutrition. Um, but it's certainly for a lot of people, it's just a natural interest that they might want to learn more about. And of course, at the moment, um, there's just such a boom um, and for the last little while, such a boom in what clients are demanding because yeah. of, you know, the the probiotic movement that's happening at the moment and yep. the interest in gut health. And it's really Microbiome. becoming such more such um, uh, more mainstream. So it's, yep. yeah, I would love to see that um, model from the US come to Australia. Let's hope that yep. in, our, in our careers well, it does. Um, you know, one of the other things that I do is um, I'm involved with the College of Integrated Veterinary Therapies, and so we right. have um, we have resources for veterinary students. So yes. if you're a veterinary student, you can become um, a member for free and access a range of webinars and resources. And and I think it's true to say that the veterinary profession largely is now more and more feminised. Um, a large yeah. proportion of female veterinarians are graduating, and more females and males access. Um, complementary medicine for themselves. Yeah. And so yeah. I think the feminization is is leading to um, more interest from female veterinarians. And that's certainly our experience with the college that w the vast majority of our students are um, women that have been in practice for a number of years. They get to a point where, like me, they they become frustrated. Yeah. That, that, you know, what else can they do for their patients? Yeah. And then they, you know, seek to, to learn more. And, and I think that is also um, creating you know, a um, a wave of uh, a wave of change within the profession. And mm. one of my one of my projects that I've been involved with is with the American College of Veterinary Botanical Medicine, and we've been petitioning the American Board of Veterinary Specialists to have herbal medicine recognised as a specialty. Mm. Um, it's premature to say where that's going to um, end, but what I can say is we've been able to demonstrate uh, the science of herbal medicine 
um, as mm-hmm. a legitimate science and has um, a very um, strong evidence base within veterinary medicine, but not where you'd expect it to be, certainly within aquaculture, within the poultry industry, yeah, um, right. within within production animals, um, there is a, a surge, um, a a plethora of research being published looking at plant extracts and um, and herbs for uh, substitutes for things like growth promotants, um, yeah. antimicrobials and antihistamines. Which is so needed, like isn't it? Yeah. yeah. With the rise of yeah. anti- antimicrobial resistance. Yeah. I mean, there has so to be an watch, alternative. Absolutely. And if you watch this space, hopefully we'll see um, botanical medicine being or phytomedicine being one of the first um, complementary sort of alternative, if you like, uh, therapies that that becomes recognised, and then we can really get the research. We can get the, yeah, you know, all, everyone says, "Well, where's the research?" Yeah. But you know, it takes some sort of recognition of it mm. to actually get the support from and the universities. Funding. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we're very excited about that. That is really exciting. Thank you so mm. much for sharing that. I wasn't aware of what was happening behind the scenes, yeah. but it's it's very exciting, and um, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what happens over the next few years for sure. Yeah. Um, and so, Barbara, at the moment, um, I believe that you're practicing in a in integrative veterinary hospital in Sydney. Is that correct? That's right. So, uh, myself and my colleagues uh, with All Natural Vet Care in Sydney, we started mm-hmm. off as primarily a practice. Um, only offering natural medicine, but more and more we um, had clients wanting us to be their primary um, veterinarian as well. So we offer both a referral service as well as um, having a sort of a primary, a first opinion, a base of clients. Yeah, yeah first first um, line. And uh, but what we do is we have a a conventional approach to diagnosis and and our normal workups. Mm-hmm. We're a registered veterinary hospital, um, but when it comes to treatment, we are looking at um, integrative medicine. So if a patient comes already as a referral, already on medication, we take that into account with our treatment protocols. Mm-hmm. Um, if we have an animal that's reasonably well but has a problem, then we will certainly use natural medicine over conventional medicine. But we will still use the same conventional medicines as any other practice yeah. um, where it's essential and necessary. Yeah. Um, and But what we can do is offset a lot of those side effects and we can help the animals cope better with those medications if they have to be on them. Yeah. Um, but we are on a daily basis, delighted with what we can do just with natural medicine. By that, I mean diet, um, mm. and nutrition, and uh, phytomedicine, be it Chinese herbs, Western herbs, whatever, mm-hmm. um, supplements, and also things like our, 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 our body therapies like acupuncture mm. and, and chiropractic, et cetera. Yeah. And are you, um, do you have a, a fairly well-stocked herbal pharmacy? Do you, would you call it a pharmacy um, in your yes. clinic where you make up yeah. your own um, formulas? Absolutely. So we've okay. got a herbal dispensary. It's yeah, quite expensive. Okay. Yeah. Um, and we have a range of uh, Western herbal medicines which are in tinctures. So we can actually tailor our medicines for individual patients and their individual needs. And we also have a range of Chinese herbal formulas that we use as well as individual herbs that we can add to those formulas, again, to tailor the the, um, the medicine to the individual patient. And that's a bit of a, a mind spin for a lot of veterinarians that come and visit us. They say, well, why do you need to tailor it? Well, that's one of the magic things about botanical medicine is mm, we can... So personalised. Yeah. And, and what we mean by that is looking at what that individual patient's needs are, not just the diagnosis, for example, of liver disease, 
But what other things are going on for that patient? For example, do they have anxiety? Do they have a dysbiosis? Do they have any bowel issues? Are they overweight? Are they a normal weight? Do they have any lameness? So we can look at the totality of the patient's mm. physiological needs, um, what, path- what pathology is going on, and we can come up with a strategy that treats the predisposing and perpetuating kind of causes of why the patient has that imbalance, as well as treating the disease, the actual pathophysiology. Mm. And I can give you some examples as we move through today. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like an absolute, complete, holistic approach to health, which um, is the beauty of integrative medicine, isn't it? It, it doesn't ignore other, other body systems that perhaps right. aren't diseased at the moment, but might be contributing um, or affecting the, the, the problem at hand. That's right. Um, okay. Well, I mean, what I'd really love to talk to you about today, um, although I've been enjoying our conversation so much so far, is your approach to managing liver disease. And I'm happy to go into specifics of um, different um, categories of liver disease or looking at liver health as a whole, um, including the the sort of remedies that you commonly reach for. Um, so I'd be really, really interested to hear your your approach from you know from the moment the patient walks in the yep. door. Yeah. So the most common patients we see are, are referrals with chronic um, liver disease. They've not always been worked up. Some clients don't want to go through biopsy or ultrasound or, you know, um, find a little aspirate or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes we're working a little bit in the dark um, with, you know, a definitive diagnosis. But yeah. essentially my approach is um, reviewing the clinical history because sometimes I can pick out um, patterns um, that are telling me or giving me clues to the underlying pathophysiology. Um, it's just in, in a similar way to Western medicine, we, there's certain breed relationships, you know, yes. systemic shunts with yeah. the young animals and things like that. So uh, there's a, a Western sort of process, a Western diagnostic process, but reviewing the medical history and then examining the patient, the patient can give us additional clues when we examine them from a um, holistic perspective. And so, for example, we're looking at skin and coat condition, we're mm. looking at circulation, we're looking at um, the eyes, we're looking at a whole range of things that we probably wouldn't necessarily pay a lot of attention to when we're focused on a diagnosis of liver disease or yeah. a, a liver imbalance. Um, so from there, um, I'm trying to analyse uh, what is the most likely pathophysiology going on in the patient's um, liver, for example, or the imbalances that are going on in the body. And so one of the primary areas to address is a diet and nutrition mm-hmm. um, because um, there are a lot of idiopathic hepatopathies and cholangiohepatopathies, for example. We don't really know what the cause is. Sometimes it's yeah. really obvious, but most times it isn't. And so, you know, I... Our practice has an approach to nutrition, which is very much looking at reducing inflammatory foods and increasing mm-hmm. anti-inflammatory foods. So mm-hmm. and antioxidants. paying attention to diet, correct. Yeah. And we know that oxidative stress is a major contributing factor to the the progress of liver disease. So yeah. we know that, for example, inflammasomes and inflammation, um, mitochondrial dysfunction, all those things contribute to sort of the progression um, of fibrosis, um, particularly in, in chronic liver disease. Mm-hmm. And, and so then we start thinking about what can our herbs do? How do they work? And how can we employ them to treat the liver, if we're just thinking about purely the diagnosis at the moment, not the whole patient. Mm-hmm. So we have herbs that reduce fibrosis or mitigate fibrosis. We have herbs that are specifically anti-cancer in hepatic 
carcinomas, for example. Mm-hmm. We have herbs that are um, uh, antihyperlipidemic. We have herbs that are very strongly antioxidant, and and um, silymarin is is one of them. Yeah, or, or silly um, silymarin. Um, uh, Silibum marianum is the the milk thistle herb. Yep. Um, we've also got anti-inflammatory herbs. Um, we've got herbs that are, are well known for their hepatoprotective effects. And if we can select herbs that um, affect the pathophysiology, we can also use herbs together and obtain a synergy with those mm, herbs. We get a, a more profound yeah. effect. Yeah. yeah. And so, so really common herbs um, that I reach for are things like Silibum marianum. Um, which is a source of silibenin or um, silibum, which is um, in um, a product you know that that vets um, are probably got on their shelves at the moment, um, and that is an extract uh, from the whole plant. I, I personally prefer to use the whole plant because mm-hmm. I'm a herbalist, and mm-hmm. that's kind of philosophically yeah, of we like yeah. to use the whole plant. But we also use um, a really wonderful herb, um, Bluplurum falcatum. There are a couple of different species; they work very similarly. Um, but bluplurum is um, a Chinese herb that's been sort of co-opted into Western herbal medicine. It also occurs in our key Chinese herbal liver formulas. Yeah. Um, dandelion, which is Traxacum officinalis, that's mm-hmm. been around forever mm. in veterinary medicine. Um, the last couple of hundred years, it appears in our veterinary pharmacopoeias. Um, as does turmeric, um, which is a source of curcumin. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been around for a long time. In fact, I've got references. I've got an old book from 1721, which is oh a very wow. which talks about which talks about turmeric being good for the yellows. <laughs> so oh, we wow. Can, we can, for we can think what that is. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yep. Wow. Um, and then another herb that I really like is Shisandra um, chinensis or mm-hmm. Shisandra. It's um, also an adaptogen. So that can be really useful for patients that have liver disease, really low in energy and really need some some sort of additional support, some additional sort of support from the stress of the liver disease and, you know, other stresses that are going on. And then Panax ginseng. Um, it's an expensive herb. It appears in a lot of our liver formulas in Chinese medicine. It's also a really neat adaptogen. And I first kind of cottoned on to panics for liver disease when I read um, a paper in the late 90s where they had done lobectomies, liver lobectomies in dogs and used panic ginseng and actually found that it accelerated regeneration of liver oh, tissue. Really? I thought that was really, really yeah. cool. <laughs> it's nice to have a paper in dogs too because um, yeah. unfortunately so often we have mice and rats but it doesn't sort of That's right. go as far as dogs and cats. Well, milk also has a long history of um, experimentation in dogs and some of the earlier studies were on beagles where they mm. were subjected to amine um, toxicity and poisoning and they were able to demonstrate the protective effects of milk thistle um, on nice. uh, the hepatopathy that's, you know, caused by those, um, you know, poisonous mushrooms. And, and in fact, I had a, a case not so long ago. One of our um, students has graduated and she's an expert now in Norway on, on botanical medicine and she got contacted about a service dog, one of the dogs that, that uh, goes into avalanches and, and searches people. Oh, and yes. that dog had been poisoned by Amanita mushrooms. And oh. we were, uh, she emailed me just to check on a, on a dose, but it, I didn't get back to her in time I, because of the time difference. But she'd gone ahead and, and recommended a dose for this service dog, which, which survived brilliantly um, with um, a high dose of uh, milk thistle, which was given by Enema, by the way. Oh, by Enema. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's sometimes how we treat our patients with... 
um, you know, which are acutely ill and we're giving nothing by mouth, then yeah. we can prepare the herbs in a way that we can give them um, via the rectum. We get more rapid absorption. We can give much higher doses. And, right. um, you know, certainly that's the way we treat some of our inpatients, you know, their hepatic lipidosis or um, sort of acute um, liver failure. We can we can treat them um, parectally. And is there any scope for giving any herbal medicine IV? You know, that's really, really interesting area. <laughs> um, there are IV um, herbs that are available, but in fact, they're not really herbs as such. They're extracts mm. of herbs. So they're probably more drug-like than herb-like yeah. in that you do have the potential for side effects. And yeah. there is um, a limited availability in Australia, certainly used more widely in China. Um, they're used in hospitals there. Mm-hmm. And even in Japan, they're using them intravenously. There's been one study published just in the last couple of months in the USA where they used a curcumin-based intravenous um, product um, assessing its use in uh, cancer, uh, liver cancer in dogs. Um, oh, wow. So it, it, the, the conclusions were fairly limited because there was only a limited number of dogs um, in the clinical trial. But watch this space. I think that that is certainly an area that um, is being looked at now yeah. globally for humans and therefore I think will benefit from it in veterinary medicine. I know there's a lot of naturopaths and integrative doctors using IV infusions of vitamins, yep. but I wasn't aware of any herbs that were sort of safe to give IV, but you're saying they're more extracts rather than the yeah. actual, yeah. Well, yeah, they're, they're definitely extracts and they're purified. Mm. Um, they need to be. They're usually, they're not made in Australia. They're coming out of uh, Germany, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do have potential side effects. Um, the, yeah. I, I've, I've been looking at these and talking to people about them. I'm very interested in them. Mm. Um, and, you know, because they are not the whole herb, there is, like any drug, more potential for side effects because yeah. they're more concentrated. Yeah. And certainly there are contraindications for them as well. There are some that um, are considered uh, regarded quite safe, but there are others. So you really need to know what you're doing. And, and I'd say that's true for using herbal medicine in general. Yes. We know most herbs are generally, generally regarded as safe. But it's, they're much more effective when you know them like you would a drug. So, for example, milk thistle. If you were to use milk thistle, it would behoove you as a practitioner to really have a good understanding of what you're actually what you've actually got in your in your hands because there are so many different products out there, different quality, different concentrations. So where do you start with dosing? Yeah, and I is know. this the right product for your patient? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um so veterinary products make it Make it certainly make it a bit easier. Yeah. Um, but as a herbalist, um, I need to know the form. So, am I using a powder, a tincture, um, a liquid extract? Um, am I using a tablet that might be just a dried herb that's, which is the seed that's been sort of um, macerated and then with excipients and made into a tablet, or is it um, something that has been extracted and then made into a tablet? So mm. different concentrations. So I need to know the form and then I need to know about the patient, you know, whether I'm going to use a high dose or a low mm, dose. How they're going to tolerate um, it. And, and yeah, and so, you know, we, we um, I, I think as a, as a veterinarian starting to dabble with herbs, it's useful to have good resources. So mm. textbooks, for example, um, go and do a short course, um, look at some webinars on these topics so that you can feel more confident about using them and prescribing them. Um, milk thistle, fortunately, is a very safe herb to use. There mm-hmm. are some contraindications. You can get mild GI disturbances and diarrhea with using too much. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the whole, um, it's a relatively um, safe um, well herb tolerated. to use. And, 
Yeah, and and most people are kind of surprised to find out that it's not actually the roots or the leaves or the thistle that you use. It's actually the seeds that are the, the basis of the medicine that we call milk thistle or mm-hmm. um, Silibum um, marianum, which is a species, and it's the source of Silimarin um, and um, uh, Silibin, which is really the flavonolignans which are inside the seeds that have the medicinal effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, milk thistle is probably one of the most common ones that we use in our practice. We use it preemptively for patients that are undergoing general anaesthetics where we've got an oh, really? procedure. Yep. Oh, wow. Um, That's interesting. And, yeah. So we, we typically incorporate it five days before and five All days right. after a, a Just general, hep- uh, from um, a sort of hepatoprotective point of view yes, because of the anaesthetic drugs? Yes, but not just hepatoprotective because everybody – that I know that knows milk thistle thinks of it as a liver herb, and and that's its most famous use. If you go into PubMed and you look at the literature, it it usually focuses around um, liver disease, but it is much more than that. Mm-hmm. It is um, in the same way that it, isn't it? yeah, well, the same way that it stabilizes cell membranes in the liver, it does the same thing in the pancreas mm-hmm. and in the kidney, pretty much in any organ. Yeah. Um, if it's in the brain, uh, it's there's studies going on now for its anti-cancer benefits. So mm. you know it's much more than just a liver herb. Yeah, right. Um, so when we're thinking about using it preemptively in general anaesthetics, for example, we're also talking about protecting kidneys and protecting the pancreas yeah. as well and the brain. And so, have you ever done any sort of internal trials or anything where you may use it in one patient and not in another, or use it in one anaesthetic for a patient and not in another, and noticed a huge difference in their recovery? I wouldn't say a huge difference, um, like what is a huge difference? You know, yeah, how do you it's measure very subjective. that? But, but, yeah, but what I can say is prior to using it routinely, you know, patients can take a day or two to sort of, you know, get their mojo back. Um, what we, what, what we, and, and we do have patients that we don't have time to do that in, you know, it's something that they need to go into a general the next day yeah. or, you know, that day or whatever. So, so there, there are some that we can compare, but I, I, we haven't put in any specific measurements, but we feel that our patients, and it's anecdotal, um, it's experiential, um, it's empirical evidence, if you like, we feel that our patients do very well. We have very little complications with regards to general anaesthetics, and particularly for our older patients. Older patients, you know, typically um, take a, a quite a bit longer to recover mentally mm. um, from their general anaesthetic, and we find that the patients um, literally, you know, we've had, you know, serious geriatrics in their yes. late late teens, um, nineteen twenty, for example, that seem to recover very, very well. And we think that that's not it's not just the the herbs, it's the fluid therapy and it's yes. the careful monitoring and everything else. Yes. Um, and I'm sure other veterinarians experience the same sort of good results. Um, but we know from the science that what we are doing does have a benefit. It's not just doing it let's just give it milk thistle, we've got a rationale for using it and a legitimate, you know, benefit in terms of the organon protective effects. So we feel pretty comfortable with that. Yeah, no, that's, I've never heard of it used in that way, but it makes total sense. And are you just using that on its own or do you have a a remedy that you um, combine it with other herbs before and after Depends how easy the patient is is to medicate. Mm -hmm. So we've got it in a powdered form, a tincture form, a glycotract form, um, a tablet form. So, you know, uh, some things are easy to give some animals than others. So we really just, you know, um, dispense it usually in tablet form for dogs. Yeah. Um, It's pretty easy if they're already used to giving tablets, for example, that makes it pretty straightforward. So um, that's one way that we do it. Um, but yeah, milk thistle is also a really great one um, to consider using in patients which are well, but mm-hmm. they have elevated liver enzymes. And yes. 
that's subclinical. Yeah. Presentations, right? Yeah. Perfectly and healthy people, dog comes in for a dental, yeah. and all of a sudden yeah. you've got high ALT. <laughs> What's yep. going what on here? Yeah. yeah. And, and this is, you know, one of the, you know, one of the ways where where we can turn to botanical medicine for some support for these patients, mm. and it's always useful to try and sort of just check to make sure that you know there aren't any other um, infections or occult infections or subclinical. Uh, problems that are that are contributing to that, mm-hmm. but we can assume to a certain degree that there's some kind of reactive hepatopathy or a cholangio um, hepatitis, perhaps, or just mild hepatic inflammation, and yeah. that's where our veterinary um, liver products, as well as things like milk thistle, I think, are really helpful. And we've certainly got cases where we've watched that ALT, we monitor it, and it goes down, um, you know, just with a couple of weeks, sometimes a couple, a couple of, of weeks of, okay. of treatment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and so, are you generally rechecking the blood? After two weeks or four weeks, or do you have a set protocol? If the animals, with that? if the animals, if the animals well, generally in a month's time. Yeah. But if if the animals unwell, clearly we're going to be doing it much more frequently. Mm-hmm. And then, do you uh-huh. keep them yeah. on the um, herbal remedies long term after they've had that one incidence of increased liver enzymes, no, even if, if they come if, back if to normal? Come good. If they've if they've come good, and generally we also pay attention to diet in those cases. It's not. Just, mm-hmm. for example, just milk thistle. I'm just thinking that's for, for practitioners that are just wanting to put their toe in the water with herbal medicine. Yeah. That would be, you know, one thing that you could do. And and you monitor yourself and you get a sense of if it's working for you or not. It doesn't always work. And that's when we start thinking about other strategies other things, and we start yeah. using more complex formulas. Yeah. But I'm talking about the well young dog that comes in elevated ALT, the owner's not ready to go and do any more sort of no. in-depth um, investigations. So this is something that you can employ straight away to and you'll be surprised sometimes just how effective that can be. And if it isn't, then you've got to go the step further with your diagnostics. And certainly for us, we use much more complex sort of approaches to, to tackling that kind of liver disease. Because the way that we look at it is, you know, you've got a level of inflammation going on and even leakage of hepatic enzymes is going to perpetuate inflammation. So we need to do something at mm, that stage. Yes. Um, I mean, some animals do get better by themselves without any intervention. Um, that's true to say. Um, but there's also um, quite a few patients that we see which we consider to have liver hypofunction. That is something that we don't learn about in veterinary medicine. But when you see really low liver levels, like really low ALTs. Oh, and, right. Um, okay. Yeah, alphosses and what have you. And you think, oh, yeah, that's okay. That's that's normal. You know what? Also look at the rest of the patient because you might find that the patient has chronic constipation. It may have fat intolerance. It may have poor digestion. Mm-hmm. It may have chronic skin disease. It may even have allergies, um, for example. And we start thinking, okay, why is the liver under-functioning? Yeah. And that may be poor circulation, just not enough circulation in the liver. And so then we use different strategies to... Um, to deal with those kind of patients, but I just wanted to mention that because yeah, I hadn't ever thought about that way. before. Yeah, yep. it is. Yeah, yep. I mean, some <laughs> to be honest with you, as a you know new and recent graduate, I probably would have been quite happy seeing low liver enzymes. <laughs> thinking, oh great, this yep. patient's doing really well, yep. <laughs> their liver and, looks yeah. great. Yeah, but then you have to look at it in the context of the whole patient. Yeah. So if it's really low and the patient is really well, really vital, really active, looking really well, normal bowel movements, everything else, then you know it's probably not a concern. But what I guess what I'm saying is we're looking for clues outside of our general veterinary training, um, and, and these are patterns. Um, it's sort of looking at things in a in a slightly different perspective. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, and if we're putting a patient on these, you know, different herbs, even if it's just one or two herbs, and they are on other pharmaceutical medications, 
Is there any sort of contraindications to combining certain herbal remedies with certain drugs um, or anything that we need to know about, um, any caveats or any, you know, drug drug and herb interactions basically yeah. that, that we need to know about? I think it's really important. Again, if you're, if you're going to start using herbs, get some training because you can't make generalizations and broad sweeping statements, even though most herbs are generally regarded as safe. Mm -hmm. Herbs, particular herbs can interact with the cytochrome P450 pathways in the liver. And, you know, depending on the half-life of the medications you're using, for example, corticosteroids and licorice. Licorice is a liver herb, but it's also more than a liver herb. But for example, that can potentially interfere with your um, corticosteroids. It will actually increase the half-life of prednisolone, for example. So so one of the key things is whatever herbs you're using, if you you don't know them well, the best place to go to is probably PubMed. Put Mm -hmm. in the scientific name or the Latin name of the herb that you're using and then the drug that you're using and just see what comes up by virtue of any sort of um, uh, um, human case studies that have been reported or any sort of... um, uh, cautions around it. A lot of them are speculative yes. based on the active actions of the herbs and the actions of the drugs. And like if you're using a um, a drug that, uh, for example, in humans at least, like warfarin that thins the blood, then you've got to be careful if your herbs theoretically thin the blood, although most don't, you could potentially run into problems then. So that's not a big issue in veterinary medicine. But, you know, what we find is a lot of the herbs reduce the side effects of the drugs, typical drugs Mm. that we use. They also support the physiology and functioning of the liver. Mm -hmm. And we find that we can reduce the drug dose. So we need to monitor carefully. Yep. Um, But again, you know, I'm not going to say carte blanche, just use anything and you're going to be fine. (laughs) You need to sort of treat them like pseudo drugs. They're generally regarded as safe, but it depends on the context. And for example, patients with really fragile disease, like let's say they're in acute liver failure, you want to know what you're doing. You need to talk to a veterinary herbalist, get the best advice. And I've been involved in a couple of cases like that, really interesting cases um, where we've actually had physical gallbladder obstruction. The patients have been in emergency centres, in specialist centres, and the clients have actually contacted me to um, be part of the the treatment protocol. Mm -hmm. I've had to talk to the specialists and say, this is what this formula does, this is what these herbs do. And we've been able to, in three cases, two of them where the gallbladder is obstructed and they're about to go into surgery, but their their risk of surviving the surgery is incredibly high. Mm. And we've intervened with a formula which we've given rectally or at the, at the hospital they've been given rectally, and we've been able to show their enzymes rapidly returning wow. to normal and they've been discharged from hospitals. So two cases that worked really well. Yeah. Um, the third case, the patient was pretty much, you know, that that – what actually happened to that particular case was the herbs were there. There wasn't a lot of interest in giving them. It, the patient didn't receive the herbs and the patient went into surgery. So yeah. that was that was unsuccessful. But it, shows, it shows that herbal medicine can be... Very powerful. Very powerful. Yeah. When, yeah. When, when prescribed appropriately at the right doses and given in the right circumstances. So mm. um, I find that really exciting. And do you find much resistance with the specialists and the surgeons to say if you were going to recommend a remedy for a patient that was under their care, are most of them quite amenable to it or do you still get a bit of pushback? Because I know in human medicine, um, in my own experience with my own um, health, I I found an absolute 
major pushback from sort of our conventional gastroenterologists and things like that um, yeah. when I even mentioned anything as simple as nutrition and a diet change. Yep. Yeah. We get both. We've worked with um, specialists who are fabulous. I mean, really, um, they are open in extraordinary circumstances to trying these things. We do get referrals from specialists. Okay. Um, so we've worked with a number of them and then we have other um, specialists and veterinarians who think what we do is probably akin to, you know, folk folk medicine. Yeah. Um, and so it depends on also the clients. Um, a lot of our clients utilise ourselves as well as the specialty centres yes. or, you know, we work closely um, on the same cases with specialists and and therefore um, those veterinarians are uh, far more amenable to um, trying things or and they often see themselves the difference the benefits, with incorporating yeah. what we're doing. And and certainly there are oncologists that we work with that say, look, we don't know what you're doing, but what you're doing is working. Our patients have That's much nice. better outcomes. Yeah. So, you know, with liver, for example, liver cancer, we've had some really, really fantastic outcomes with liver cancer. Mm. Um, and, and you know, that I think, I think as more specialists become trained in herbal medicine and we've trained four or five oncologists, we've trained dermatologists, we've trained um, internal medicine specialists, um, and, and they're starting to do the research. You know, yeah, they're starting to... That's great. Particularly in America, they're starting to take it on and and conduct um, multi-centre clinical trials, et cetera. We've got one happening in the US right now with um, um, hemangiosarcomas and using particular Chinese uh, formulas, Chinese herbs, um, to to demonstrate um, a, a benefit. So wow. um, watch this space for those results. Yeah. And yeah. Um, Barbara, I know we're, we're coming to close to time, but I just, you, a couple of times you've mentioned reaching out to, for the general practitioner, reaching out to different resources to help aid yep. their, their learning and, and implement some, um, you know, allow them to implement some of these amazing therapies mm. into their treatment plans. So can you just list a couple of uh excellent resources in terms of books and and maybe um, online resources and also talk a bit about some of the courses that you offer? Uh, disclosure, I am um, directly involved with the College of Integrated Veterinary Therapies. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I have um, a very strong interest in education. We have three um, government-accredited postgraduate degrees, a graduate diploma in veterinary Chinese herbal medicine, a graduate diploma in Western veterinary herbal medicine and a graduate diploma in veterinary acupuncture. We also have a range of short courses. If you want to put your toe in the water, we have some basically starter courses that will give you um, the key things that you need to know to be able to prescribe safely. And you'll learn um, particular um, formulas or herbs that you can start integrating into your practice pretty much straight away. But we've also got a range of webinars. You can just literally choose which one you want to watch um, and um, register for those webinars and get that kind of education. There's also some great textbooks. So um, there is Integrating Complementary Medicine into Veterinary Practice um, Mm -hmm. by Goldstein. I'm a co-author on that textbook. Um, There is one called uh, Veterinary Herbal Medicine. Yes, I've got that one. (laughs) Yep. Um, there's Chinese herbal formulas for veterinarians by Chen um, and Chen and um, Bibi. Um, Sine Bibi is one of our teachers uh, at the college. Um, so there are a range of um, uh, texts. We've got one which is Steve, uh, sorry, Essential Guide to Chinese Herbal Formulas, uh, Bridging Science and Tradition um, in Veterinary Medicine by Dr. Steve Marsden. That's a fabulous book to okay. sort of start using formulas from a biomedical sort of basis so you don't have to go and learn Chinese medicine, yep. per se. 
Um, so really That's there great. are a range of resources now for veterinarians in Australia um, at your fingertips um, and you can get sort of basic education to get you started and your clients will absolutely love it and your patients will benefit from what you're doing. Yeah, no, I, I have no doubt. That that sounds great and they, they sound like excellent resources. I might look up some of those myself. Yeah. Um, I just had one final question from um, my personal interest. I do a lot of research um, for my own um, role and I come across a lot of frustration with how many papers there are for humans in relation to natural medicine and how few, um, I mean, I know that there's some great ones out there, but how few um, papers and good studies there are, particularly in our companion animals. From your point of view, how um, sort of accurate is it to extrapolate the data that we're receiving from human research and literature to our veterinary patients is it i know dogs and cats and humans uh have a share a lot of similarities in terms of physiology and anatomy but is it do you find that you lean on the human research quite a lot in your approach to your cases or do you really need that that species specific research okay. to be done. So it de- depends what you're what you're actually looking for. For example, I lean very heavily on the systematic reviews and reviews and and um, on individual herbs. There's a, a huge amount of literature that's available um, on what research has been done on a particular herb, mm-hmm. for example. Um, most research in humans started out with research in laboratory animals. So if you're yes. a pocket pet vet, there is a very yeah, I know for what you do, <laughs> unfortunately. And some of that research is pretty horrible. Um, yeah. You know, so much for, for natural and, and nice. It's it's. It's just distressing. I find it um, awful. Um, But in terms of cats and dogs, very limited. Mm. Um, But surprisingly, it's increasing. And Mm -hmm. even in just mainstream journals now, we're getting, um, you know, 100 studies published in the last five years, for example, in mainstream veterinary journals. But if you go again to aquaculture, if you go to um, uh, pigs, if you go to poultry, um, hardly a day goes by when there's not a paper that's been published Mm -hmm. um, on some plant extract. So it depends where you're at with that. So for cats and dogs, dogs in particular, I think we can correlate um, the clinical evidence in humans somewhat with animals, um, understanding there are some obvious differences in metabolic body size and things like that. Cats, a little bit different. Um, cats are, you know, metabolically um, different as well yes. as physiologically different. But I think we can do some um, trans species um understanding of how the herbs work. Um, and I think that's a good place to start. Uh, and yeah. that's certainly where I started. I'm trained in human herbal medicine as well. Um, right. And um, some of my ideas uh, have crossed over into the veterinary area. And when I apply some of those ideas, you know, I've, I've found them to be successful. For example, way before the microbiome was considered the... <laughs> the <laughs> the be-all and end-all. Um, yeah. The, the, in, in, in human herbal medicine, for eons, the basis of treating chronic disease is the gut. So you've yes. got to start with the gut. That means starting with the diet. And so I've done that for the last 30 years. And of course, yep. now it's like, oh, this now is people are waking up to we it. We need to do something about it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So there's a lot we can learn from tradition. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot we can learn from science. And as veterinarians, we're well placed, I think, to critique 
the information to critique the data and see whether it is actually something that we can use when we're asking a clinical question, um, you know, does it make sense mm. that we can use this particular herb for this particular condition? Yeah, and then the, the proof will be in the pudding, really, once you Absolutely. try something, yeah, and, and see yeah. that it works. Mm. Oh, well, I've so enjoyed talking to you today, but I, um, I'm well aware that we're going a little bit over time. So before we, before we leave, Barbara, I'd love you to share with our listeners where they can find you and your clinic and the um, CIVT, the college yep. that you support. Um, so whatever you would like to share with the listeners would be would be great. Um, websites, Absolutely. things like that. Then um, yep. and then we'll say goodbye. Okay. So um, the practice email is reception at naturalvet.com.au. Mm-hmm. You can find us at www.naturalvet.com.au. And the college is www.civtedu. Dot org. Great. Um, and you can find out, you can just go and have a, a wing through there and, and see what takes your fancy. Yeah, I think I'll be doing that later on today. It sounds excellent. <laughs> I have come across it before, but I haven't, I must admit, I haven't done too much delving in there, but I, I think um, it sounds like an excellent resource for everyone. Um, well, thank you so much. You've been such a wonderful guest on the Pure Animal Podcast. I've really enjoyed all of our discussion today and I've learned a lot myself. Um, are you able to leave our listeners with a final pearl of wisdom about um, how to take an integrative approach to liver cases? Yep. Well, we all know how important diet is. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to. I want to put this. I just want to put this thought to people, and it's a little controversial. I want you to to have a, a rethink on nutrition and the way that our profession advocates highly heat processed foods, because mm-hmm. in human medicine for liver disease or for any chronic disease. Fresh food is best. And I'm just going to leave that um, thought. Yes. Um, what is the role of diets in chronic inflammation and can we be doing things differently um, to, to benefit our patients? And yeah. um, that, it's just to leave that thought with people. Yeah, no, that, that's an excellent thought and, and something per, um, definitely worth putting a lot of a lot of thought into. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you again, Barbara. We'll, we'll let you go um, and hopefully we will have you back on the show in the future because you've been an absolute wealth of knowledge today. Thank you. This is the Pure Animal Podcast and I'm Dr. Sarah Howard.